All right, will you take your Bible, please, your digital device, and meet me in John 15? No Pokemon for those who have the digital devices. It is amazing to me. This is, I'm digressing here. It is amazing to me. I, apparently, we have a, what's called a Pokemon stop right here at our church sign. So we get people coming to our church just stopping at the sign all day long. It is uh, really something. So Andre and Becky and Sally and I were thinking about, uh, Lauren and I were thinking about, hmm, is there a way to, uh, to encourage, to use that and encourage uh, to bring them to church? So, but now is not the time. Now is not the time for Pokemon. We're, uh, we're moving back to John chapter 15, okay? John 15. One thing I've come to uh, appreciate more and more, especially as I've gotten older, is the person who does not withhold facts or gloss over hard truths, especially when it comes to Christian faith. We live in a hard, relentless world, don't we? Where people of all types carry burdens of all kinds, where Christian or canned platitudes simply don't cut it. Yet sometimes in our Christian zeal, we communicate a simplified Christianity that offers only the advantages of following Christ without also affirming the inherent costs. Like legal fine print, we leave the hard things inconspicuous and mention them only in passing. Not Jesus. Jesus never speaks in half-truths. Always honest, he presents both the blessings and the burdens of discipleship. And perhaps nowhere is this more obvious than in John 15. So on the one hand, Jesus spends the first half of the chapter assuring his disciples of abundant life. The the abundant life is the abiding life. Uh, like, Like a vine with its branches, Jesus promises, He promises, He assures fruitfulness and fullness of joy to all who abide in Him. But then He moves from this great promise to a promise of another sort. He He speaks of This difficult promise of imminent danger. Cannot help but notice the stark contrast as the chapter moves from words of love in the first half to words of hate in the second. Specifically, the general hatred of the world toward Christ and followers of Christ. Today, this hatred comes in the form of intolerance, indifference, exclusion, 
discrimination, slander, ridicule, violence, and even murder. History is littered with examples of this. And our generation is just another link in this long lineage of Christian persecution. But hated does not mean hopeless. For by grace, Jesus chose us out of the world, and by grace, he leaves us in the world to bring grace and hope to the world. Helped by the Holy Spirit, we can press on in Christ and in our Christian witness. Hear this. Because the Holy Spirit is your help, you can persevere in hope, even when hated by the world. That's what we learn from this morning's text, beginning with verse 26. And so I want to read really the whole of the passage from verse 18 into chapter 16, verse 4. And then we'll consider just the second half of that passage, beginning at verse 26. Jesus says in verse 18, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled they hated me without cause. Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have been so kind to leave us with your word and to speak truth into our lives, even hard truths that we sometimes find difficult to receive. We live in a fallen world, a broken world, where sin and its devastating effects are everywhere, a world where people have turned from God 
and the things of God and rebelled against Christ and the people of Christ. We live in a world of hate. And we know that sometimes this hatred is directed toward the church. And yet we know, God, that you have put us in this world for, with a purpose and for a reason. To bring grace and hope to the very people who rebel and hate. And so this morning as we gather again around your word, will you speak hope into our lives? That we would be the people you've called us to be. For your name's sake. Amen. I want to consider this in three basic parts. Help, hatred, and how to move forward. The word but that begins verse 26 is significant in that it connects this section to the previous one by contrasting the hatred of the world with the help of the Holy Spirit. Here Jesus assures his disciples of two important truths. The Holy Spirit is coming and he comes specifically to help. Now, I'm building a small retaining wall in our backyard, something that I have never done on my own. But, but, I, but after speaking with those who have, and after watching a few YouTube videos, and after making more than a few trips to Lowe's and Home Depot, I'm ready to go. The fear of the unknown has dissipated because I've gotten the help I need. Is it not true that, that the right help can make a world of difference? Students struggling in their studies, for example, can experience a significant breakthrough just by meeting with the right teacher or tutor. Parents wrestling with the endless ups and downs of parenting can be tremendously encouraged just by hearing from someone who's been there before. People who've, who've dealt with addictions know very well that the right help at the right time can keep a person on the right path. Whatever the case, good help brings clarity to the situation and confidence to the person going through it. And the point is this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, who will face opposition from the world, what a difference it makes to know that you are not on your own. That God Almighty is with you and for you and helps you. Listen, can you think of anyone's help you'd rather have more? He knows all things, has all things under control, and we're told he even works all things for good for those who love him and are called by him. He is willing 
And he is able to accomplish whatever concerns you. And notice here that all three persons of the Godhead serve to help you. As Jesus sends the Holy Spirit who comes from the Father. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one, who join to help you. The Holy Spirit, in fact, is specifically called the Helper. (laughs) That alone should bring great encouragement. How does He help? Well, according to verse 26, one way is that He bears witness about Christ. He testifies to the nature of Character and work of Jesus Christ the Lord. The the Spirit of God bears witness to your spirit, clarifying who Jesus is and what Jesus does so that you can persevere in the face of trial and tribulation. He bears witness to those around you as well, thereby not only ministering to you, but also through you to a world in need. And you will also bear witness, Jesus asserts in verse 27, because you have been with me from the beginning. This original band of disciples called by Jesus to follow Jesus had walked with Jesus for roughly three years. From the very beginning of his public ministry, they lived with him and learned from him. They had served in his name. And now he prepares them for what's next that they were to bear witness about Him. Hear this. Because witnessing about Christ is expected of those who walk with Christ. Witnessing about Christ is expected of those who walk with Christ. Helped by the Holy Spirit, Jesus expects us to witness to the world. Now, isn't this exactly what we see happening at Pentecost? The last recorded words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before his ascension into heaven reiterate exactly what he was speaking to them now. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said to them again, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And when the Spirit came, just as Jesus promised, indeed they witnessed as never before. How powerful was their witness among people in the world to the salvation of many souls even in the face of fierce opposition, at every turn, the Lord added to their number daily as they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, it wasn't on them to muster the strength, but rather to rely on Him who supplies it. Sadly, sadly, I think, my observation... Witnessing 
is an uncomfortable subject among many Christians today. We get a little squirmy. We get a little uneasy. We begin to tune out and think it applies only to someone else. And I wonder how many of us avoid witnessing simply because we think it's entirely up to us. We just leave the spirit out of it altogether, that it's entirely up to us, that we must know all and say all at all the right times in all the right ways. Or how many of us, I wonder, avoid it simply because we assume we don't have to. That God's going to do His thing or that God will use someone else with specific gifts in evangelism. But here, Jesus teaches another way. The way of the Spirit which frees us to be more free in our Christian witness so that we do not need to run ahead of the Spirit in our own strength as if it's all up to us, nor should we lag behind lacking confidence as if it's up to someone else. You who have the Holy Spirit, will you not witness together with Him? The Spirit bears witness and you also bear witness. He who testifies about Jesus helps you to testify about Jesus. Think with me. Were there not opportunities just this last week? As you think about the people you met and the places you went. And will there not be more opportunities this week? This week. As you go forth in the Spirit, your helper who bears witness to you and to those around you. We have to come to grips with the reality that it's just not going to be easy all the time. I'll address this later, but if you're waiting to witness until it becomes comfortable, you'll never witness. In fact... The word witness used here in the ESV is martyreo, from which we get the words martyr and martyrdom. So in its very DNA, the word implies sacrifice and suffering, which should, should come as no surprise in that Jesus is speaking of witnessing to the world within the context of being hated by the world. As we move here into chapter 16, we move then with the Spirit's help to address the world's hate. They will put you out of the synagogues, Jesus told them in, in chapter 16, verse 2. 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Now, how sobering it must have been when these men, I mean, put yourself there. How sobering it must have been when these men heard these words. This wasn't a, yeah, let's go get a moment. These words of coming persecution, no longer welcome in Jewish synagogues, essentially cut off from their Jewish heritage, their own people would turn on them simply because they had turned to Christ. And as with Christ himself, they would be misunderstood, marginalized, and murdered by a world, verse 3, that does not know God nor Jesus Christ the Lord. And history reveals that within a short span of time, that's exactly what happened. James, a son of Zebedee, was the first. The first of these disciples. Stephen was the first, but at least the first we're aware of. But James, the son of Zebedee, the first of these disciples beheaded under Herod Agrippa in A.D. 44. Philip, laboring in the gospel, for the gospel in Upper Asia, was scourged, imprisoned, crucified in A.D. 54. Matthew was in Ethiopia in A.D. 60 when he was slain with, with a halberd a weapon that combines a spear and a battle axe. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, oversaw the churches of Jerusalem when at the age of 94 years old, he was stoned and beaten to death with a club. Matthias also suffered stoning in Jerusalem before being beheaded. Andrew was crucified in Edessa, an ancient city in modern-day Turkey. Thaddeus was likewise crucified in Edessa in AD 72. Peter was crucified in Rome, upside down, because according to the historian Jerome, he considered himself unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Bartholomew pre preached in several countries and even translated the Gospel of Matthew into the language of India before being beaten and crucified. Thomas shared the Gospel in Parthia in India before being thrust through with a spear. Simon the Zealot took the Gospel to Mauritania and Africa and even Britain before he was crucified in AD 64. And John, the author of the very Gospel we're reading this morning, he founded multiple churches when from Ephesus, he was ordered to Rome where he was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil only to survive, then be exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the final revelation. Jesus warned these men what was coming and come it did. They knew the cost of following Christ, and yet they persisted in their Christian witness even under the threat of death, and we are here because of it. As Tertullian famously said, 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Some of God's promises are much easier than others. And this isn't one of them. And so, loved ones, you must know that being a faithful, truthful, obedient, vocal, caring, earnest, loving, worldliness-rejecting, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-heralding Christian, which is the life to which we've been called, will cost you dearly. You too will be marginalized and perhaps even martyred as many others are today in places all over the globe. Just this week, Melinda was telling me about a conversation she had recently with a woman who who sometimes ridicules her for her faith in the Lord. And they were discussing faith when a question arose. Are you willing to die for it? And the woman who claims to know God said no. No. She's not willing to die for what she believes. But then to her amazement, Melinda said yes. Asserting absolutely yes, she is willing to die for her faith if called upon. What about you? How would you answer? How would you answer? Not, not to me. This is a safe place. How would you answer to the person who's ridiculing you in the moment? How important is your faith to you? Because I believe we're faced with this question more and more in today's society. And I am convinced that we will not live for Christ, not really, until we're willing to die for him, if necessary. But once we've settled that matter in our own hearts, we're free to enjoy him, and share him with others, knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. <clears throat> Isn't it Jim uh, Elliot who said so well, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
As I said last week, the Christian life was never meant to be lived in the Christian bubble. It's hard at times, and we're tempted to give up on occasion. We are tempted to give up on I am tempted to give up on occasion. Which is why Jesus said to them, and now to us, in, in 16.1, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. I'm telling you this now to keep you from falling, to keep you from giving up, to keep you from throwing in the towel. To fall away here is to stumble, namely through doubt and disbelief. And so Jesus again reassures in verse 4, I'm saying these things to you now that when their hour comes, you may remember. You see, I think we're tempted to fall from faith when we forget our assurance in Christ. We're tempted to give up, to, to fall, to to throw in the towel, whatever, when, when, we're, when we're focused more on the danger than we are on the Lord. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit who comes to us to help us. Coming from the Father, He assures us uh, of all that Jesus is and does. And He reminds us of all that Jesus has said. So when the world threatens and doubts creep in and your witness grows weak, we can know that Jesus has given you His Word and the witness of the Holy Spirit to help you press on and persist persevere hated I'm sorry helped hated and now how do we move forward I have three suggestions none of which are uh, new or particularly inspiring, but so important to remember. Number one, join Jesus on mission. Join, we're answering the question, how do we move forward? Join Jesus on mission. God, has sent, God sent Jesus to seek and save the lost, so Jesus sends us. Jesus took the initiative and entered the fray, and so must we. This is the heart of Christianity and the heart of our Christian experience. And here at East Parkway, as you know, we've spent the last year or so trying to clarify our purpose and priority as a church in the effort to be more intentional about these things. We've stated our purpose as fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And so the, the great commandment basically says to love God with everything you have and are. Well, the great commission says to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about or you see these things around about upward, outward and inward, this is what we mean. We exist to love the Lord. That's upward. And to reach people for the Lord, that's outward. 
and to make disciples in the Lord. That's inward. Now, Ed Stetzer, some of you know the name, executive director of Lifeway Research and one of the foremost missiologists today, suggests, just a suggestion, suggests a metric by which we can measure our effectiveness. It's not the only metric, I'm sure, and it may not be the most important. But Stetzer says that churches that win at least 10% of their Sunday morning average attendance per year and baptize at least 50% of those 10%, those churches tend to be making inroads into Great Commission endeavors. For us, that would mean about 12 conversions and 6 baptisms this year. I know the answer to this question. I'm going to ask anyway. How many of you would like to see more people coming to Christ? How many would like more baptisms? How many would like to experience and rejoice over new life in the church? And I'm not just talking about transfer growth as displaced Christians from other churches make their way to our church. They're welcome to. I'm talking about new growth where people who were in the kingdom of darkness have been transferred to the kingdom of light. This means, I'm getting a little worked up. This means, please hear this, that those in the church must actively share Christ with the unchurched, unsaved people in their lives. Those in the church must actively share Christ with the unchurched, unsaved people in their lives. Are we expecting or waiting that someday, magically, without any effort on our part, that, that the unsaved are just going to flood through our doors? And when those people come to Christ, they must be discipled again by those in the church as each member of the church utilizes and exercises his or her spiritual gifts. So I cannot emphasize enough that fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment is not my thing. It's not an elder thing. It's not a staff thing only. It's your thing. And it's our thing together. Together, we must join Jesus on mission. Number two. Move with the Spirit. Move, I chose that word intentionally, move with the Spirit. 
today there is a heightened awareness that we as Christ followers are becoming increasingly countercultural. We talked about this last week. It's very, very evident. There is this deepening realization that going out with the gospel necessitates an otherworldly power. Far more than, I, than, than you and I can bring to the table. There is a growing hunger for a movement of the Spirit of God into arenas where programs or strategies or new ideas will leave us wanting. We are living in opportunistic times, but these opportunities demand that we move with the Spirit as He moves among us. David Olson He's the author of a book called The American Church in Crisis, wrote, The 21st century is more like the first century than any other previous century, which means that the strategy used in the New Testament is more applicable than ever before. Chris Nye wrote in an article for Leadership Journal, we have the same Holy Spirit as the church of the past, even though present day ministry may differ. But yet another author, Craig Dennison, asks, I think, a crucial question facing churches today. What happened, he wonders aloud. We were a spiritual army, but we became an institution. We were a movement, but instead we've become a building. Loved ones, I think we need to understand that at its core, Spirit-birthed missions is a movement, not a mere ministry. We must move from church as usual to church on the move. We must resist presuming upon the Spirit either by putting limits on what He wants to do, who are you to say, or by confusing our wants with His. We must recapture the movement mentality that has always marked the Christian gospel. And hear this, we must understand that the movement mentality requires just that. Movement. So as you're out and about each day, as you look ahead to your week, you're out and about wherever God's going to take you this week. Move with the Spirit who moves in and through you and among those around you. Move with the Spirit. Number three. Please, please, please do not wait to feel led. Do not wait to feel led. I want to tell you about John Wesley. I I never knew this. I knew some things about Wesley. I never knew this, and I was just shocked, frankly, but in a wonderful way. Wesley was an Anglican who studied at Oxford and came from a refined 
high church background. He loved the high church experience. He greatly preferred the high church experience and he made no bones about it. He loved the liturgy, the hymns, the manner of dress, the decorum, the dignity, the propriety, the respectability of a formal church service. He was very, very honest about this, sometimes painfully so. But as the Great Awakening of the early 18th century began affecting Protestant Europe and British America, and especially the American colonies, Wesley sensed that God was moving in the unrefined circles of society among people who had little to no church experience at all. So he left willingly, freely. He was compelled. He left the high church he loved so much, he left the high church setting to instead labor as an itinerant preacher, taking the gospel from place to place. Now hear this. After 33 years of itinerant ministry, 33 years of living in these unrefined places among unrefined people, he wrote in his journal that he still despised it. In other words, Wesley was led of the Spirit, though he didn't always feel like it. I think we sometimes confuse being led with feeling led. I think we confuse it on the macro level when it just comes to, to global church stuff. And on the micro level, when it comes to local church stuff, I don't feel led to serve in children's ministry. I don't care. Someone needs to serve in children's ministry. Thank you for those four who did. So what we're talking about Worldwide church missions or just weekly church, the mission of the, the local church. We, we, can, we think, we, we just, we've wrongly, we've duped ourselves to think that if we don't feel led, we must not be led. As if our feelings have final say. But as you well know, in other walks of life, feelings can be very deceptive. and deterrence to what God desires. In fact, if the church historically depended on the come-and-go feelings of its members, it would have petered out long ago. But thankfully, those who went before us paved the way, not because they necessarily felt led, but because they were led. Like Wesley, we must prioritize obedience over preference. To join Jesus on mission and move with the Spirit is to be led even when we don't feel led. 
By grace, Jesus chose us out of the world. By grace, he leaves us in the world so that we can bring grace and hope to the world. And because the Holy Spirit is our help, we can, in fact, persevere in hope. So let us press on in Christ and in our Christian witness. Amen. Amen. I think that's my prayer. I think that's our prayer, Father. Will you give us whatever is needed, not just us as a whole, but each and every one of us? Will you give each of us whatever is needed to join Jesus on mission? to move with the Holy Spirit. Not because we necessarily feel led, but because we are led. Will, Will you do this work, this necessary work of grace in each of our hearts? Will you make us great commandment people who then naturally become great commission people. We ask this for your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the lost, and for the fullness of our joy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.